Good morning. It is good to be here. I'm missing my husband, but it's good to be here. <laughs> um, Hebrews 7, we're going to power through the whole chapter today, which is no small task, let me warn you. Um, and so for the sake of time, I'm going to give you a little bit of a summary of the first 11 verses. Last week, you would have known that JD ended with the mention of Melchizedek, his final verse in the scripture he read was about Melchizedek. And I remember when I was a new Christian, I took a break from my studies and went to Bible college for two years. And one of the classes I took was a, a class in Hebrews with an incredible professor. Um, and it was just an amazing, amazing class. And I remember him spending a lot of time once he got to Hebrews 7 on Melchizedek. And I remember thinking, who on earth is this guy and why do we care? Why do we care about this obscure, mysterious priest from the Old Testament who appears and disappears? Why is he so important? And couldn't quite grasp it. But by the end of that class, I had an absolute appreciation for Melchizedek. And so today, Hebrews 7, a large chunk of it is about this priest called Melchizedek. And basically what happens in, in the narrative um, is you have Abraham, it's first time he's mentioned is in Genesis 14, um, and it's the story of Abraham going to retrieve his nephew Lot, um, who has actually been abducted. And so there's this war that rages. It says Abraham returns from the slaughter of the kings. <laughs> Sounds pretty horrific. But as he's returning from slaughtering these kings with his now retrieved nephew, he comes across Melchizedek, and it's the first time we hear this name um, in Genesis 14. And it's quite an interesting chapter because he's just different. When you first are introduced to Melchizedek, it says he is Melchizedek, which first of all means king of righteousness. And then it says he is king of Salem, which means king of peace. And for you right now, that should ring a whole lot of bells about reminding you of someone else, Jesus. Um, and so whenever you see Melchizedek mentioned in the Bible, he's only mentioned three times, Genesis 14, he's mentioned once again in Psalm 10 and then here in Hebrews. And every time he's mentioned, it's to do with his resemblance to Jesus. Um, and so I'm gonna just point out a few things that we pick up in those first 11 verses. Then I want you to listen out, tune your ear and tell, just note where it reminds you of Jesus. So first of all, as I said, you get introduced to him as a king of peace and a king of righteousness, Jesus. Um, the second thing is he's introduced as a priest of, the God, of God most high. Um, and this shouldn't be shocking for you and I, it just sounds very different, like, well, he was a priest. But for a first century Jew, this would have been alarm bells going off because priests and kings were never in the same person. You couldn't be a king and a priest. And this is the first example we ever see in scripture of a priest and a king being in one person. And it should remind you of Jesus. Um, and so, because Israel basically was divided up into different tribes and they had different functions. Judah was the tribe of kings and Levite was the, Levi was the, the tribe of priests. And so it was impossible for somebody to be both because they would have, have to have a different lineage. Um, but once again, it's just a heads up about this royal priesthood, this unique new priesthood that Melchizedek is part of. 
Um, and the other thing that's quite interesting that happens is Abraham comes to Melchizedek and the first thing Melchizedek does is he comes out and he blesses. He does this oral blessing of, of Abraham and he says this blessing, but he brings with him, Genesis 14 tells us, bread and wine, which should remind you of Jesus. Again, the bread and the wine. He has communion with him basically um, and he blesses Abraham and this is significant because it says in um, verse seven that it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So this is unthinkable for Jews in this time that Abraham would be inferior. He's the patriarch, right? He's the father of the faith. Um, and here is this priest blessing him, signifying that actually he's superior to Abraham. Um, and also what he does is he receives tithes from Abraham, which again stamps again this resounding message that this is a priest, he's unique, he's a priest and a king, and he's superior, he's better. Um, and so it's driving home these points. The other thing that's a little strange about Melchizedek is he just arrives on the scene. You don't hear about him at all until Genesis 14, he just appears, and then he disappears after this. You don't hear about him again. Um, scripture says that basically he um, has neither beginning of days nor end of life without gene genealogy. He endures like Jesus. And so the Psalm 110 reference to him says of Jesus, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek because he lives forever. Um, and so that's the first 11 chapters, a brief summary, the main points that you needed out of that. And the burning question is why on earth does this all matter? Why do we care? Why do we care that Melchizedek is like Jesus? Um, and so if you can turn to Hebrews 7 with me, we're gonna read from verse 11 and hopefully point out why this matters. Why does it matter that there's a new priesthood? Why does it matter that Jesus is part of it? So we're gonna read from verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? That's the question we're asking. Why do we need another priest? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So it's reiterating what I'm told you. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the, 
the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So why does this matter? Why is this change in priesthood so important? For us, Melchizedek is pretty meanless, meaningless. We can barely understand why you would need a new priesthood. We can barely understand why you would need a priest unless you've grown up Catholic. You probably are, well, why would I even need a priest at all? Um, but for a first century Jew, as I said, this change in priesthood is a mark that something significant is changing. Um, when we first moved here, well, no, it was probably about 10 years ago, we made our first visit to Yosemite. So I'm not from here, and up until that point, I'd only ever known Yosemite as Yosemite, um, <laughs> which is how foreigners pronounce it. <laughs> and um, I remember somebody was busy telling us how how it would be, just giving us some, I can't even remember who it was, but it was basically someone who loved Yosemite and was giving us the sort of lowdown on what to expect. And I remember we were staying in an Airbnb outside the West Gate, and they basically gave us this description of Yosemite. So we'd heard about it, but didn't really fully grasp what we were, what we were going to and what we would see. Um, but I remember them describing, you know, that you would, you would enter in the West Gate, pay, and that you would drive for about 45 minutes once you're in the gate. So in my mind, I thought, well, we're there. We're here in Yosemite, aren't we? And we're driving 45 minutes through the forest and the woods, and it was absolutely gorgeous. But they said, you need to understand, you'll reach, after about 45 minutes, you'll reach the tunnel. And they said, the tunnel, it'll get dark, and it'll, you, know, you won't be able to see anything, but as you come out the tunnel, you'll see this vista this it'll explode before you, this vista of Half Dome, the valley, El Capitan, it'll all just, as you come through the tunnel, you'll see the glory that is Yosemite. Um, and really what is happening here is Melchizedek is the tunnel. That's why he matters. Melchizedek matters because what he is is a giant heads up, a giant focus that is telling Jews and us something is changing and something significant is changing. Um, and so it says in verse 11, where there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law. And so that's what the heads up is about. Something better is coming than the law. Um, and so the first thing we notice that things are changing. We're in the tunnel. We know that something good is coming. The second thing we know is that things are changing for the better. So a better priest for Jews would mean a better covenant, a better law. Um, and so does that mean that the old covenant was bad? 
this thought would be abhorrent to a first century Jew because the law was given to Abraham by God. It was precious to first century Jews. And so he's not actually saying it's bad. You think of when you're driving through Yosemite, when I'm driving through the forest, it is beautiful. It is good. There is nothing bad about driving through the forest for those 45 minutes. But it is nothing compared to what I see on the other side of the tunnel. Um, and so basically N.T. Wright says he's constantly, the writer of Hebrews is constantly contrasting not something bad with something good, but something good with something better. And so please, we probably need to think about this because for us who have been born into the new covenant, this can be lost on us because we're so used to being on the other side of the tunnel. If you've been born in the shadow of half dome, you can't appreciate it what it's like to have lived in the forest and to have come through and seen this. And so what I wanna do is just remind you of what it used to be like and a lot of what happens in Hebrews, and this is the gift of Hebrews to us, is it forces our noses back into the old covenant and it forces us into what it was like before the tunnel, before Melchizedek, this new priesthood, before our great new high priest. Um, and so, Think with me for a moment about what it was like before. So God's intent always from Eden, he creates Eden and he creates it to dwell with his people. That's his intent. He wants to be with the people he's created. And so he creates Eden, he wants to dwell with man and sin enters. And so there's this problem created, the problem of sin, the problem of God's holiness and the interaction of those two things. Uh, the problem of God's wrath, and now there are barriers. All over the place, there are barriers. And so they can't approach God because of sin. And God constantly through the Old Testament is making these attempts to still in some form dwell with his people. So whether it's the tent of meeting in the desert, he provides this tent of meeting where they are, God is able to in some inferior form dwell. It's not Eden, but he can dwell with them under certain constraints and with certain barriers. And then you see the temple is built and the temple is fraught with barriers. <laughs> but it is again God's grace, God's Gift. The priesthood is a gift where he's, he's attempting and um, it's, it's reaching out to try and have some form of dwelling with man. And so if you, if you think about some of the barriers, uh, it's interesting because as you approach, so like, you know, the, if you just think of the, the rituals of the, the, the temple, there were all these rituals that the, the priests had to do daily, sacrifices daily, cleansings. Once a year you could go and get your, your sins actually atoned for. It was just, it was a lot. And there were all these barriers. And the best that they could do was cover it. It was just a temporary covering. So in our lounge, our living room, if you come to our house, you'll see a gorgeous old Victorian couch that I was given. And I love this couch, but it has a tear in it. And so I have a beautiful throw over it that I tuck in to cover up the tear in the couch. And it works, it works. But every time someone comes to visit and sits on the couch, 
the throw gets dislodged, and by the end of the evening, by the time they get up, I can normally see the tear sticking out from under, and it's just embarrassing. Then I go back and I cover it up. It's a temporary cover. It's the Levitical priesthood. It's temporary, it's a cover. It doesn't solve the problem of the tear. Um, and so, with no hope of drawing near to God without some kind of covering, what the Levitical priesthood did was it provided some cover. So if you were going you know, daily, every day the priests are doing these sacrifices, once a year you get to go and atone for your sin. Well, this is one, once a year you make a pilgrimage all the way to Jerusalem, to the temple. You get there, and if you read up about it, you'll find the first barrier you reach is a low little wall that says no Gentiles beyond this point. So at that point, I'm out. I'm my barrier, I'm already out at that point. I'm already excluded. If you are not a Gentile and you can actually step over that wall and get to the next thing, you've got to take your sacrifices to get inspected and see whether they're acceptable. And if your goat has got some blemish, you get sent away. It's another barrier to you being with God again covering your sin. If your, your goat happens to be a good goat, now you have the priest, he's got to cleanse for his sins before he can go in and atone for yours. What happens if he doesn't cleanse properly? It's totally out of my control, but it's another barrier. And then what if he didn't cleanse properly and he dies while he's atoning for my sins? Do I just come back next year away? There's just all these barriers that are constantly keeping us out of the presence of God. And Mola says that the old, this idea of the, the Levitical priesthood being a cover was an intentional thing. It wasn't actually a mistake. Mola says that the old covenant was designed to faithfully point to its inadequacies, meaning that the whole aim of the law, the old priesthood, was to emphasize its weakness and in so doing point to something better. So this endless repetition. You'll see God in the Old Testament, he often he works through repetition, through inadequacy and longing. So this repetition of every time doing these things, every time having to cover, every time knowing it's inadequate, that it can't take away our sins, leaves the Israelites going, there must be something better than this. Please tell me there is something better than pulling over the cover and tucking it in around my couch. Please tell me there's a better couch. And basically over here, what God is doing is saying, there is something better. And so we're gonna look at why it's better. First of all, it's a better hope. So verse 18 says that the law was weak and useless, which is such an affront. I can't, I can't imagine how these first century Jews must have felt hearing this. The law was weak and useless, making nothing perfect. It couldn't save. And instead of that, we are given a better hope through which we draw near to God. In Jesus, we get salvation. So this new priesthood provides a better hope by which we can be saved. Mahler says, the old covenant was not an initial plan that failed, it succeeded gloriously. Its purpose was never to save, it was to demonstrate man's need for a savior. There must be more than this. The second way it's better is that it's a better sacrifice. The law appointed 
not only was the law weak, but the law appointed priests that were weak. So these, these priests were weak in that they were imperfect. So they had to, as I said earlier, they had to account for their own sins and cover their own sins. But we in the new covenant have this oath and the oath appoints a son who is perfect forever. And that's good news for us because he's like us, but he's not like us. And this is a classic mark of Jesus' priesthood. Um, I remember when I was in uh, college, I studied Zulu, which is an African language. And I studied for three years and felt like I was pretty good at it until I spoke to a Zulu speaker. And then you will know this if you have studied a second language where you start off all confident, like, Saubona, Igamalami, Ngu, Ronel. Hello, my name is Ronel. It's not so profound. And then this person would rattle off in Zulu and I would be like, I'm like you, but I'm not like you. Can you just pull it back? I'm not that good. And really that's what's happening here. These priests were good. They were like him, but they're not like him. Jesus is completely different. He is a completely better sacrifice. Not only because he is human, he was tempted. He understands your weakness. He understands your pressure. He understands your temptation, he's sympathetic, he's like you, but he's not like you at all. He's not like you at all because as it says, he was holy, innocent, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. N.T. Wright calls him a startling different sacrifice. Part of the perfection, the completeness of his priesthood is that he achieved in a single great sacrifice that to which all the previous sacrifices pointed, but which they could never bring to perfection. So in one final better sacrifice, Jesus smashes all those barriers we spoke about. Once and for all, they're gone. One perfect sacrifice. So he is a better sacrifice once and for all. And then he's a better guarantee. It says you're a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently. There's a foreverness because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So obviously these other priests died, right? So there's this endless succession of priests. <laughs> They're human, they die multiple priests, um, and so they couldn't be a priest forever, whereas Jesus, this, he talks about this indestructible life, the fact of his permanence, his, the immortality of Jesus, the eternal nature of his priesthood, obviously is a better sacrifice, but then on top of that, it's sealed with this oath where God actually promises and swears by himself that he will forever be your priest. And all of that makes him a much better guarantee <laughs> because he is forever, he is flawless, and he is eternal. And so we forever have this guarantee. God is sworn, it says, and will not change his mind. Um, and so things are changing for the better. Next, things are changing forever, and this is where we've landed now in the, what John Piper calls the real glorious conclusion and culmination of this whole chapter and the part that we really wanna get to, because this is why we have, consequently it starts off, verse 25, means that everything before means that this is true. So consequently, 
He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the amazing culmination of all. Why do we care about a new priesthood? Why do we care? We care because actually he is able to save us to the uttermost as a new priest in a new order. Um, John Piper basically explains that the reason why we are able to be saved utterly is because Jesus is praying for us. And so you really wanna grow this idea of salvation to biblical proportions here because I know that I got saved. I believed and I received salvation in 1987. It was a significant day for me. It was a wonderful day. I think about it often. And I know that on that day I received salvation. I know that on that day I believed. But the fact is that it didn't end there. There's more that Jesus has been doing since that day and there's more that I've been doing. And so not only am I saved, in 1987, I'm being saved and I will forever be saved because Jesus is praying for me. Um, and so it's such a, it's a much bigger way of looking at this. If you think of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, he speaks to Peter in a moment there and this, this reminds me um, of me and the way that Jesus actually sustains my salvation. Um, Jesus basically was telling Simon, Peter, that he was gonna deny him. I just often think about how absolutely devastating that must be to have Jesus telling you you're gonna deny him. Um, and he says to him, you know, you're gonna deny me three times. And he says to him in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again, listen to the confidence in Jesus. He's telling him he's gonna fail, and in the same breath he's saying, but when you've turned again, he's confident that he's gonna turn back to Jesus again. Strengthen your brothers. It's an authoritative, confident prayer, and I often imagine that moment where, you know, it's happened. The rooster's crowed three times. Peter's denied Jesus three times, and it says Jesus looked at him. And I just imagine what Jesus' prayer has been in that moment, you know, while he says, I've prayed for you. And in that moment, what was he praying for Simon Peter? That his faith wouldn't fail him, that he would come again, that he would return back to Jesus. And we know that in that moment, he did. He did actually return and did strengthen his brothers. And so it's huge encouragement to us as we go along our faltering way that actually Jesus has saved you, he will save you, and he will forever save you because he is a new high priest. Dane Ortland says, we are to the uttermost sinners, and so we need to the uttermost savior. And that word to the uttermost is basically used in one other place in Luke 13. I don't know if you remember the story of the woman who was Jesus healed. She was bent over. It said she couldn't stand all the way up. And Jesus heals her. And the word there when he heals her all the way up means to the uttermost. So he straightens her all the way up. And that's the promise to us in our salvation that Jesus will save us to the uttermost, that he will save us comprehensively, completely, exhaustively. And this is hard for us to, to believe sometimes because if you're anything like me, 
Sin can be a long and hard road. Sin can be deep and sin can be long. And it's very hard with the discouragement of our own humanity and our own failings to keep returning to Jesus. But the fact that Jesus saves us to the uttermost means that he actually can reach to the depths and the lengths of our sin. And so I remember so clearly um, about 2020, we, Alan and I were, it was like 2 a.m., the Lord wakes up Alan. Um, and he goes through to the living room, he can't sleep, so he's sitting there kind of going like, I wonder why I'm here, I wonder what's going on, and praying, trying to figure out what's, what's happening, and in through the door walks Sophie at 2 a.m. And Sophie is our middle daughter, she was about 17 at the time. <laughs> she should not be walking in the door at 2, 3 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> And I remember so clearly, I mean, the shock on her face, you can just imagine. Um, and the three of us basically proceeded to, she's told me, I can tell you the story, by the way, in case you're worrying. Um, so she's, um, God has worked really well in her life in the last couple of years. This was the low point. So we're sitting in the living room and um, we're going, so, where were you? <laughs> and she says, well, I couldn't sleep, so I went for a walk. So she's afraid of the dark, and I look down and she's wearing socks. And in that moment, everything in me wanted to believe the lie. Everything in me wanted to believe that this was true. Because I was scared of what I might find out. I was scared of the truth. I was scared to get into the depths of what was actually going on. I was scared because I couldn't guarantee that I could save her from it. I couldn't guarantee anything. I had no power to, to change anything in that moment. And the fact is that Jesus is not like that. And I'm so grateful that Alan in that moment was loving Sophie to the uttermost because he just drove the point down. He just kept drilling down on this thing until we got to the bottom. And it was not good news, I will have you know. It was not good news. But... It was the truth. And our truth of what we are hiding and what we're afraid to share is not scary to Jesus. Jesus doesn't shy away from our sin. He's not afraid to find it out like a fearful mom. Dane Ortland says, we all tend to have some pocket of our life where we have difficulty believing the forgiveness of God reaches. We say we are totally forgiven and we sincerely believe our sins are forgiven pretty much anyway. But there's that one deep dark part of our lives, even our present lives, that seems so intractable, so ugly, so beyond recovery. To the uttermost in Hebrews 7.25 means God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevices of our souls, those places where we are most ashamed, most defeated. More than this, those crevices of sin are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. We cannot sin our way out of his tender care. And so I wanna encourage you, this great high priest who's able to save you to the uttermost, I wanna encourage you to bring all of you, not just the acceptable parts. 
The second part that he reaches in the uttermost is not just the depth of our sin, but the length, and it's persistence, isn't it? Oh, sin is so persistent. Um, and anybody who has walked this road knows the devastation and the despair that comes with constantly disappointing and constantly failing and constantly falling. And it's actually easier to just give up. It's much easier to give up than to keep returning to God in that moment. I remember so clearly with Sophie in, this, in that moment of, well, the moments that were subsequent to that was so, Sophie really confessed and we were working on um, helping her. And it just kept happening. <laughs> it just was not the last time. And I remember at one point she was absolutely devastated because I'd found out something again. And she just said, Mom, I'm so tired of disappointing you. I'm so tired of it. I'm so tired of failing and falling and disappointing. And we can feel like that. But I want to say as a mom, I said to her, I knew you'd disappoint me. I disappoint you. We all disappoint each other. That's not the worst thing that can happen in this scenario, that you disappoint me. The worst thing is that you leave me, that you run away, that I can't help you. That's the worst thing for me. Not the depths of what you've done. I mean, that matters, but I don't care about it half as much as I care about being with you. And that's what God is saying, is that actually, no matter how long, how many times, how awful you feel that you just can't win, He's saying, come back to me, come to me. That's the whole point of the, conf the, the new covenant. The new covenant is that we could draw near to him. Dane Ortland says it's like this, note the blessed realism of the Bible. This is the explicit acknowledgement that we Christians are ongoing sinners. Christ continues to intercede on our behalf in heaven because we continue to fail here on earth. He does not forgive us through his work on the cross and then hope we make it the rest of the way. He never lets go, wishing us well, hoping we glide the rest of the way into heaven. He carries us all the way. Our sinning goes to the uttermost, but his saving goes to the uttermost. And his saving always outpaces and overwhelms our sinning because he always lives to intercede for us. This is our high priest. This is why it was important to replace the old priesthood because we have a new high priest who saves us to the uttermost. I remember saying to Sophie at the end of, when, when this all went down, I was busy doing a parenting course. <laughs> the wonderful time to be doing a parenting course when you find your daughter sneaking in from doing who knows what. And I remember saying to her at the end of it, Sophie, I don't look good right now. I have no business running a parenting course right now. And you certainly do not look good right now. But my goodness, Jesus looks great. <laughs> Jesus is amazing. He has dealt with your sin. He is praying for you incessantly at the right hand of the Father that you will be saved. You are saved to the uttermost. And so I wanna encourage you, Southerns, this morning, don't stop drawing near, no matter the depth and the length of your sin, just keep drawing near. That's why he came, that's why he died. He blew apart those barriers so you could draw near. And so don't hang around in the outer courts. Don't hang around outside the temple. Go in. Today, you can go in. 
And so I wanna ask you to stand with me. When I was growing up in the Methodist church, every Sunday, now the Methodist church was very good at methods, and one of the methods they used was to sing the Jude's Benediction song at the end of every single service, and it has etched it on my heart, and I'm hoping that today it'll begin to etch in your heart, because this is the promise of a new priesthood. And so if you can read, I'm gonna ask you to be loud. It's not hard to <laughs> out-shout me, but I would like you to drown me out, please, as we read Jude's benediction together. And my, afterwards I'll pray, but I want you to have these words sink in because this is why we need a new priesthood, a new priest. So let's start. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever, amen. Jesus, we look to you. You are majestic. You are the valley. You are half dome, you are El Capitan. You are the beauty of Yosemite and even more. You are our great high priest. You took away our sin forever. You're killing it in us. <laughs> You're bringing us to life. Lord, you are so good. You are great. Lord, we don't look good, but you look great. And we wanna exalt you even now and say you are majestic. You are exalted. You are our only hope. And we thank you, God, that your sacrifice was perfect. Once and for all, you have redeemed us. You've restored us back where we can dwell with God. And we will be forever grateful, forever grateful that we get to dwell with God because of your sacrifice. And so thank you, our great high priest. We exalt you. We lift you up. In Jesus' name, amen.